Well, I think I've gotten all my crying out of the way, so let's turn to Matthew chapter 6 as we continue to walk through the Lord's Prayer together. Let me uh, also apologize in advance. I seem to have the chest crud like everybody else, so I'll be hacking and coughing and sipping on water all throughout the sermon. Water. Not good. Matthew chapter 6. <clears throat> In this morning's sermon, Jesus teaches us to pray the third Godward petition, as we've been calling them. That is, Jesus teaches us to pray to God and to ask Him to do something. If you remember, the first thing that Jesus taught us to pray and ask of God is that His name would be hallowed in the land. The second thing that he taught us was to pray and ask that the kingdom of God would come fully and break forth into this fallen world. And so it makes sense then that the third petition that Jesus would teach us to pray is that the will of the king would reign sovereign in the land. I mean, that is what it means to be a king, is it not? That your will is the thing that always reigns supreme. Well, with that in mind, let's go ahead and read uh, the text of the Lord's Prayer, and then we'll dive in. I'll read it aloud. You read along with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is God's holy, inerrant, inspired, and infallible word. Amen? Amen. Father, would you please use this word for our good and our eternal joy this morning? Amen. Okay. This petition uh, that Jesus teaches us to ask for, it's, it's, it's a little strange when you stop and think about it. I mean, why would we need to pray that God's will would be done at all? Isn't that what it means to be God, that your will always and in, in every place reigns supreme? Well, in one sense, yes, that is true. But that's not the only way that the Bible talks about the will of God. As a matter of fact, the, the one word will that we use in English, in the Greek, there are several different words that are used to, to talk about this, right? But will, the will of God, it's, it's that which God desires. It's his volition. It's the things that he seeks to bring to pass, his plans, his purposes. The word will in your English Bibles is kind of like the word love in your Bible, right? It's, it's a little tricky. The word love in the Bible means much more than warm, fuzzy feelings of acceptance. It means more than how you and your wife feel on your honeymoon. There's, there's complexities, there's layers. And so also, the term will, or the, the term will of God in the Bible, it means much more than the simple concept of that which God always sovereignly brings to pass. Now, theologians have a bunch of fancy words that they use to try to describe the, the kind of texture of the will of God that you see in Scripture. They use terms like decretive will and permissive will and preceptive will. And as I say those terms, I see people like their eyes are already glazing over. Well, don't worry, we're not going to do that this morning. This is not going to be a Bible study where we 
break down these words. Rather, I simply want to read some scriptures to you this morning. I want to pull some, some Bible verses out that show you kind of the complexity of the way that uh, the authors of scripture talk about the will of God. Uh, I think that terms like this, decretive, permissive, preceptive, those sorts of things, they, they are helpful and they have their place. But uh, more often than not, it's, it's better just to kind of let the scriptures speak for themselves. Okay, so let's, let's do that. The first scripture that I have for you this morning is 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. 2 Peter 3, verse 9. In it, uh, it says this. The Lord is not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all. This is very extreme language. Now, we know from other things that God has communicated to us in his word, namely the reality of his eternal wrath on those who don't repent and go to hell. We know that a great hum- uh, number of humanity will in fact not come to repentance. Right? We know that a great portion of humanity will in fact perish in their sins. Okay. Acts chapter 17, verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. So this is a statement expressing the desire of God, the will of God. He is commanding something. He's calling all people everywhere to repent and to turn back to him. This aspect of God's will refers to his commands, right? The things that he wants us to do. It's the same thing that was expressed by God when he gave us the Ten Commandments. When God gave us the Ten Commandments, he told us his will for our lives, that we would be obedient and that we would not lie or steal or cheat, going on down the list, even though cheat's not on there, but you get what I'm saying. And we know, since this sermon was preached in Acts chapter 17, that many men have in fact died without turning back to God, without walking in repentance. So from these first two scriptures, I think what we can say from part of the Bible is that there is an aspect of God's will, there is a certain part of his desire that can be resisted. It can be opposed. It can be disobeyed. It does not infallibly come to pass. Okay. But there's another way in which Scripture speaks of God's will. Listen to the next two examples. Isaiah 46, verse 10. Isaiah 46, verse 10. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying... My purpose, my will, will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. So here we see that God is saying that he has a purpose, a plan, a good pleasure. It's part of his will, and he's had it since before the foundations of the world, and that nothing can thwart it. He declares the end from the beginning. Before it even comes into existence, his will guarantees that it will absolutely, infallibly, and sovereignly be brought to pass. For scripture, Romans chapter 9, which we heard in its entirety, in its context this morning. You'll appreciate that if you were in Sunday school. 
In Romans 9, Paul talks a lot about the justice and the mercy of God. The the theme there is, is God going to be faithful to his promises to Israel? And he says some pretty strong stuff there. And one of the main points that Paul is trying to communicate in this chapter is that God's will is sovereign over the will of man. As a matter of fact, that's what makes grace so amazing in this chapter. So sovereign is the will of God, says Paul in Romans chapter 9, that the Lord will harden the hearts of men in order to bring his will to pass. Romans 9, 18 says it this way. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Now Paul understands the implication of what he's saying here. He understands that this is a very weighty truth and that a big part of us is going to want to rise up and rebel against it, right? My will is sovereign. You know, we think that we're God, that sort of thing. And so this is, he answers in kind. He gives a response to that. And this is what he says in the very next verse. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And the obvious answer to that is no one. No one can resist the will of God. Well, Sean, didn't you just say that there's an aspect of God's will that can be resisted? Well, yeah, that's what certain verses seem to communicate. God wills something and it doesn't come to pass. But here we see two other scriptures that tell us that there is an aspect of God's will that always and infallibly comes to pass. Seems like we're in a bit of a mess, right? It's a little complicated. It's a little messy. That's okay. I think it's actually not that difficult to make sense of. I think if you understand that God is a person, and like all persons, he has greater and lesser desires. So Jonathan Edwards, for example, one famous theologian, he was clear to communicate from verses like the ones we've read this morning that when God allows a portion of his desires to be opposed, to be resisted, to be violated, when he allows his son, and even in some senses, yeah, when he allows his son to be hung on a cross, it's because he has a deeper and a greater desire that he wants to bring to pass. The example that we use all the time in here is, you know, I want to look good with a six-pack, but I also want to eat ice cream. I have two desires. Now, in me, those are warring, competing, not necessarily holy desires. But in God's heart, on a, on a much higher transcendental level, he has different desires. And he allows one of those desires to be violated in order to bring about a deeper desire. You with me? What does any of this have to do with the Lord's Prayer? Right? That's the question. What does any of this have to do with what Jesus is teaching us to pray this morning when he says, pray like this, okay, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, I think that that second part of that clause is the most important part. Jesus doesn't merely teach us to pray that God's will would be done. He teaches us to pray that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the way that the will of God is obeyed in heaven is perfect. It is perfectly obeyed in heaven. There is no rebellion. There is no disobedience. There is no pain or suffering or sorrow. There is only light and life and peace. You know that the Bible actually gives us a picture of how the will of God is obeyed in heaven? In Psalm 103, God tells us exactly that. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Now listen to this next part. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do 
his word. Obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers, who do his will. The mighty angels in heaven do the word of the Lord. They obey the voice of his word. The psalmist says they do the will of God. They obey. They submit to the will of God. In heaven, they don't need theologians with patches on their elbows to sit in chairs and go, okay, we got preceptive and we got this and we got the permissive will of God. They don't need that because they're all, they're all combined. In heaven, you don't have to explain why one aspect of God's will is disobeyed when another aspect is infallibly brought to pass because it's all obeyed. But here in the fallen kingdom of earth, that is not the case. And so Jesus teaches us to pray that such would be the case. He teaches us to pray that all of the inhabitants of the earth would obey the voice of his word, that they would do his will as they ought. Have you thought about what earth would look like, what this fallen kingdom would look like if we all obeyed the will of the Lord as the angels do in heaven? Contracts would cease to exist. There wouldn't, there wouldn't need to be a need for a contract. We'd all just tell the truth to each other all the time. Locks wouldn't exist. You wouldn't have to put chains on your bicycles. You wouldn't have to get theft insurance for your really expensive items in your home because people wouldn't steal. Kids, Patience, Bella, you and you, I know your names, Micah, Cohen, Isley, listen, if we all obey the will of God here on earth the way that the will of God is obeyed in heaven, you would never get spankings. There would never be timeouts. You would never be grounded. Your mom and dad would never be anxious about you. They would never be worried about you because you would just obey. There would be no more jealousy. There would be no more crimes of romantic passion because husbands and wives would never commit adultery. Envy would cease to exist and all the problems that go along with it. There would be no more drunk drivers because drunkenness wouldn't exist. There would be no more need for drug rehab facilities because nobody would want to be inebriated by anything other than the Holy Spirit, controlled by the Holy Spirit. There wouldn't be any orphanages or need for adoption. There wouldn't be any debate about contraceptives or abortion. What would this earth look like if we all perfectly obeyed the will of the Father in heaven? It would look like heaven. But that's not where we are, is it? That is so far from the reality that we live in. Our world looks very different. It's fallen and broken and marred and ruined by sin. The will of man has been in direct conflict with the will of God since the days of Adam and his great rebellion. And ever since that day, rather than saying with the angels in heaven, thy will be done, we say with our father Adam and our mother Eve, my will be done. In our rebellion against the will of God, we are unique amongst all of good, God's good creation. The wind and the waves obey the will of the Lord perfectly. The stars move according to his perfect decrees and commands. The grass grows. The sun shines in accordance with the desires of our Father in heaven. 
All things in heaven and on earth were created, says John the Revelator, by the will of God. Everything perfectly obeys the will of God down to the tiniest molecule of every atom in this universe. The entire universe bends the knee to the will of God in perfect obedience, but not us. Not humans. The trees clap for the glory of God's name, but we want our names to be glorified. The Lord raises up kings and queens and rulers to demonstrate his glory in the earth and exercise his perfect will, but we want to build our own tiny, pathetic kingdoms where our sad wills reign supreme. Probably most pridefully, not only do we want uh, our wills to be done on earth, but we also want our wills to be done in heaven. It's an exact inversion of what Jesus is teaching us to pray here. We are so prideful that we want God to adjust his will for our lives to our will for our lives. We think we know what's best for us. We think we know what's best for our family. We think we know what's best for our church. We spend our entire lives trying to assert our wills on this earth. We do it in our careers, in our marriages, with our children, and, and most frustratingly, in the church. But haven't you found that when you try to push for your will to reign supreme, that it doesn't really go very well for you? And if you've been walking with Christ for, well, longer than a day, haven't you found that when you fully submit your will to the will of God that it goes so well for you? Even when it's hard, even when it hurts to submit to the will of God, isn't it, the, isn't it, isn't it like the, the worst day of submitting your will to the will of the Father in heaven? Isn't that better than the best day when your will reigns supreme on the earth? Every time that we try to assert our will on the earth and we fail, God is reminding us of something. He's teaching us a lesson. He's saying, you're not me. And when you try to have your will reign supreme, it doesn't go well for you. I know it's hard to let go of the reins, to just fully submit our will to the will of God. It's scary. It brings a lot of uncertainty into our lives, right? The will of God has a way of leading us down some obscure paths. It almost always brings us into suffering at some point. It always brings us into sanctification, and that's rarely easy, even if it's always good. Submitting our wills to the will of the Father can cause difficulties in our marriage. It can create friction with our children. It can destroy really old friendships, relationships that you thought would be there forever. It can get us fired from our jobs. It can get us hated by our neighbors. It could even mean our death. The Bible is full of people who have submitted to the will of God for their lives, even as they suffered greatly in the process. You think about Abraham and what he must have been going through, not only as God called him away from everything he'd ever known and ever loved and gave him a completely new identity and sent him to a new land, but after he waited for decade after decade to get his son, he finally gets him, and, and then you find him marching up that mountain with his only son, ready to take his life if it's according to the will of God. 
You can imagine the anxiety that must have lived in the heart of Moses as he and Aaron walked towards the great and mighty Pharaoh in accordance with God's will for his life. You can consider the suffering of David as he waited and endured much suffering and persecution while he tried to walk in the will of God for his life as he waited for the throne that God had anointed him for. Most importantly, you can consider the example of Jesus who specifically told us that he came not to do his own will, but to do the will of the Father in heaven. I can't even imagine the internal struggle of Jesus as he sat there praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knew what was about to happen to him. He knew what was going to take place on that cross. As bad as the physical pain was, he knew something worse than that. He knew that he was getting ready to take the wrath of God onto himself, onto his very soul. And so he cried out to God in prayer. And he prayed what most of us pray, Father, if it's your will, take this away from me. But then he said this, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. A paraphrase of your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, even if it's in my life, even if it means my suffering, my destruction. If you're afraid to pray that the will of God be done on earth as it is in heaven in your own life, you should know that you're not alone. Can't you just feel that same kind of emotion bubbling up out of Jesus as he prays in the garden? You should know that you have a sympathetic high priest in Jesus, your Savior. Jesus walked in the will of the Father even though he knew that it was the will of the Father that he suffer tremendously. Listen to Isaiah talk about the will of the Lord for Jesus' life. Isaiah 53. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. It is the highest act of faith-fueled obedience, the greatest imitation of Jesus that we can portray when we stop and we pray from the heart, Lord, not my will be done, but yours. Your will be done on earth, in my life. <laughs> Anyone can accept the will of God when it's easy for their lives. This is the draw and attraction of the prosperity gospel. Wait a second, the will of God that I have a Mercedes? I'm in. I never have to be sick again? Where do I sign up? But the true test of whether or not we're willing to pray this prayer from the heart, which is the only way that matters, we don't want to pray this prayer like hypocrites, like religious leaders. We don't want to just say it because this is the right, Jesus told me to pray this, so I'm going to say these words. No, we need to pray it from the heart. The true test of whether or not we can pray it that way is whether or not we can still pray it even in the midst of our suffering. <coughs> can we pray this prayer while we grieve? Can we pray this prayer while we're at a church where maybe we don't love everything about it? Can we pray this prayer in the middle of cancer? Can we pray this prayer when we know that our sanctification is going to bring some kind of embarrassment as we confess our sins? Can we say, thy will be done even if I don't get that husband? If that woman that I've had my eye on doesn't want to be with me, if I don't ever get that baby, Lord, still, your will be done on this earth. 
Can you say it even as you face imprisonment and torture and death? In 1871, a man named Horatio Spafford lost his four-year-old son to scarlet fever. In that same year, Spafford lost a large portion of his wealth in the Great Chicago Fires. Four years later, Spafford lost his four daughters. He and his wife, excuse me, his wife and his four daughters were on a ship to England. Almost unbelievably, out in the middle of the ocean, they collided with another vessel, and all four of his daughters were lost. He got a telegram from his wife when she finally made it to England, and it had two words, alive, period, alone. Spafford, a student of scripture, he believed deeply in the sovereignty of God's will. And he believed in the goodness of it too. Even when he felt utterly eviscerated from the agony of his suffering. So Spafford got on board a ship to England to go be with his grieving wife. As he passed over the spot where the last boat sank and his daughters died, he wrote the hymn, It is well with my soul. And he wrote these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. One day, the will of God being done on earth will not involve any pain. And it won't involve any tears or sorrow or suffering that roll like sea billows. But not today. Not yet. Anybody who makes you a grandiose promise, some kind of utopian vision for what this earth will be like, they're deceiving you. Jesus has not promised us that. But he does teach us to pray while we wait. Now, if this all seems very morose to you, right, like not, not quite the Sunday morning pick-me-up you were hoping to get after maybe a long week, uh, I'm sorry, but I've got something better for you than an apology. I have the good news of the gospel. You see, the good news of the gospel for the children of the gospel is that God's will for your eternal joy is unbending. It is absolute. It is already accomplished. It was accomplished when Jesus laid his life down on the cross. Listen to the language of Scripture regarding the will of God for your soul. Ephesians 1.5 He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. The word predestined means he set up all of reality in such a way as to bring about his perfect ends. Later in verse 11, in him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. It's done. We've already obtained it. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. (coughs) 
do you ever worry about your salvation? The sweetest promise that I can give you as a, as a child of God is that making it to heaven is dependent entirely upon the eternal will of God. Listen to Jesus talk about this will of God for your soul if you are in Christ. From John chapter 6. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up. It's done. The sovereign king of the universe has guaranteed it. He will do it. The will of God being done on earth will be hard for us at times. The children of God will endure these growing pains as we wait for the coming kingdom. We will cry out with all of creation as it groans, as we wait for Jesus to come and take us home. But the sweet promise for us as the children of God is that we know we will make it to that last day. And not only do we know that we will make it, we know that when we get there, we will be declared righteous because God has willed it so. The Lord of hosts has sworn, says Isaiah, as I have planned, so shall it be, and as I have purposed, so shall it stand. And the Lord has purposed that you go to be with him forever in heaven if you have repented of your sins and trusted in Christ. So shall it stand. Like the plans of war, however, the eternal plan of God for your salvation was not brought to pass without the shedding of blood. Innocent blood. You see, in order for God to bring about the purposes and plans that he had for your good, he had to enact another purpose, another plan. And it was not very good. It involved the death of his son, Jesus. This was not something that just happened as the tides of cosmic and spiritual warfare shifted and God began to lose some battle on earth. No, this was God's plan from the very beginning. Listen to what Peter says in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, speaking of the death of Jesus. Peter stands up and says to the people, This Jesus delivered up to die according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed. Now, I, I don't claim to understand all of the deep complexities of the mysteries of the will of God. But I do know this. It was the will of God that Jesus died to save you from your sins. It's also not the will of God that people kill his son but it seems as if he allowed this one desire to be opposed and resisted and his permissive will allowed that to be disobeyed in order to bring about a, a greater purpose, a deeper desire in his will, namely the salvation of his people. And now we know what the will of God is for our lives. You don't, you don't have to throw chicken bones on the ground. You don't have to go seek out divination. You don't have to pray repetitive prayers or uh, I, don't, I don't know what kind of crazy thing you might be thinking that you have to do in order to understand the will of God for your life. He's, he's revealed it in his word. The most important aspect that you need to know about God's will for your life, if you're a Christian, 
is that you go out and you proclaim this message of the gospel to the ends of the earth. But we need to ask ourselves this morning if we have actually accepted the will of the king. Have you? Or are you still pursuing your own way? Are you submitting part of your will to the will of the king or just, or all of it? Are you willing to abandon your will in order to be loved and cared for by God forever? If not, why not? If God is really there, and he is, and if he is really perfect, he is, then his will is perfect. And if his will is perfect, why would we ever want to be outside of it? Why would we ever want anything other than the fullness of his will? Not just for our lives, but for the lives of the entire earth. In Christianity, we use two words to describe what it means when we submit our will to the will of God. Repentance and faith. In repentance, we set aside our sins. That is to say, we take all the things that are outside of the will of God and we submit them to God and to his will and we let him have his way in our lives. And then we have faith, that is we place our full confidence, all of our trust in him and his will for our lives. We seek God's will for our marriages, for our finances, for our education, our children, our work, our worship, our entertainment, our schedules, our talents, we don't do it perfectly. Nobody's claiming that we do it perfectly as Christians. But we strive to do that. And when we fail, we jump back on the bandwagon. Like somebody who's stopped sticking to their budget or broken their diet. We get back on the bandwagon. But we don't say we're going to start again on Monday. Because Monday is not promised. If you're here this morning and you think that you're just waiting for the ripe opportunity to submit your will to the will of God, I want to encourage you not to wait. What makes you think that that day is going to come? Today is the day of salvation. If you don't know him, cry out to him. If you do know him, fully submit your will to his life. You're the will of your life to his life. And I promise your joy will increase. Let's pray. Father, you are good and perfect and all that you say is true. So we pray that the word that we've heard this morning would be real to us. We pray that you would help us to love what you've told us and to obey what you've told us for the glory of your name and the good of your people. Amen.